Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of John, Chapter 5. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Welcome to Seeking Truth, John chapter 5. Now last week, just to refresh us, we met the woman at the well. We found out her name is St. Fotina, which means the enlightened one. And she left her old life of sin behind, like that jar she left there at the well. And she met a new eternal number seven bridegroom, a forever bridegroom who filled her with living water. And she became a brand new vessel, a new creation. She came to Jacob's well very sad, and she left Jacob's well full of joy and hope. And some other countries in the East especially really honor Fotina. They have statues and they have shrines in their home. This is when she was sad. In the Roman Catholic Church, we celebrate her feast day on March 20th. Some Eastern cities have parades to honor St. Fotina. But she had a personal encounter with the living God, and her life would never be the same because he revealed himself to her when he said, I am he. And he was telling her the truth, and it was the Holy Spirit who set her free. When you know the truth, you will be set free. And the truth was that she had to get out of sin to be set free. It was holding her in bondage because sin always separates us from communion with God. Always. It's really hard for her to get out of the sin because she's really trapped in this lifestyle. She needs a way that she can get over this great chasm or she's going to die because sin kills. The wages of sin is death. Sin brings death. It's like drinking stagnant water kills us but he wants to offer her living water this gift of living water and he says the father wants people who worship in spirit and truth what's that the father wants people who worship in spirit and truth he's revealing the trinity to her the father the spirit and the truth is jesus he is the way the truth and the life and the father wants people who worship in the full communion of the trinity So he's revealing his deepest identity to her. He's a trinity. God is love. It's a communion of persons. It's a trinity. And he knows the way she can get back into that trinity, and it's through him, Jesus. He's the only way. He did the work of salvation. No bridge can reach God except the one he built for us. So your morality, your philosophy, your religion, your good works, it can't quite get you there. The only way to get there is the bridge of Jesus Christ. He made the way back to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. Then we see in John a lot of this theme of the hour. And so at the wedding feast, Mary says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Now to the woman at the well, he says this, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When you will worship the Father, not here in Jerusalem, not in Jerusalem, get ready. The hour is coming. And then he says, the hour is coming and is here now. It's now here when true worshipers are going to worship the Father in spirit and truth. Ah, the Father wants worshipers like this. The Father, the Spirit, and the truth. He is revealing Trinity to her. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. (laughs) 
they don't get the three thing. Because to Israel, when they said the Shema prayer every day and every night from Deuteronomy 6, they say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's one, he's one, he's one, he's one. We didn't know about these other persons. You told us he was one. He is one. One God in three persons. It's a divine mystery he's revealing to her. And he wants her to be intimate with them, all three of them in one God. He wants her to come into the total union of the Trinity. It's the only place we'll be completely, completely at rest and happy. And he can get her there because he's bridegroom number seven. And he can take her into the greatest love she's ever known, the greatest marriage she's ever known, the greatest intimacy she's ever known, the greatest communion she has ever known. Because he can take her into the communion of saints, into the beatific vision. He can sweep her up into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what he can do for her. Worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father seeks this type of worship for us to be in full communion with him. That's what we were created for. That's what they had in the garden in original holiness. God the Father, they could talk to him whenever they wanted. Jesus, the tree of life, the spirit, the river of life, hidden, hidden, but all there. Complete communion with the triune God. That's Sabbath rest. That's Sabbath rest. When you're in complete communion with the triune God, that's when you will know 100% rest. And it's very good because we're in fullest communion. He's revealing that to her. He's also revealing not just his humanity, but also his divinity, that dual nature that he has. And she says, well, when Messiah comes, he'll put all the pieces together for us. He'll, he'll, we'll figure it out when he comes. And he says these three most powerful words, I am he, I am he. That's three words. Three is the divine number, the number of the Trinity. There's only two other times. In all four Gospels, when Jesus says these three words together, I am he, about himself. And they're both only in John, of course. On the night he was betrayed, Judas brought a whole detachment of soldiers together with police, chief priests, Pharisees. They came with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all, because he's all-knowing, knowing all that was going to happen to him, came forward and asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replied, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there. And Jesus said to them, I am he again. And they stepped back and fell to the ground. Right on their fannies. All these cohorts of soldiers. That's how powerful those words are. I am he. Messiah has revealed himself. Jesus said, I am he. And they stepped back and fall to the ground with the breath of God revealing himself. I am he. And to the woman at the well, those three words were a very crucial moment in her breakthrough. Christ revealed himself as the one, I am he, and worship the Father in spirit and truth. He's going to accomplish that. And when he says on the cross, it is finished, he bows his head, truth bows his head and gives over the spirit, his spirit. St. Basil saw the Trinity in this chapter 4 of John. By truth, Christ clearly meant himself. If we say that worship offered in the Son, the truth, is worship in the Father's image, we can say the same about worship offered in the Spirit, since the Spirit in himself reveals the divinity of the Lord. Paul says that too. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He illuminates it for us. Light cannot be separated from what it makes visible. And it's impossible for you to recognize Christ, the image of the invisible God, unless the Holy Spirit enlightens you. 
that's what happened to Fotina. She was illuminated, especially on her baptism day on Pentecost. She was illuminated. The Holy Spirit enlightened her because she was baptized into the Trinity, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And she was rebirthed in water and spirit. And then he indwells her, the Spirit, and she gets all these other gifts. He gave her the gift of living water, the Spirit, and then he gave her seven, a perfection of more gifts. Wisdom, understanding, right judgment, courage, knowledge, piety, and reverence. You got the same gifts on your confirmation. And she had a metanoia. That's a Greek word that means she turned from sin and turned toward God. She turned from her flesh and turned toward the spirit. And when you do that, and we've all had metanoia in our lives, I hope, it's a 360. Your life changes. You're a new vessel. You leave the old jar at the well. So she's baptized into spirit and truth, and the Father wants worshipers such as these in full communion with the triune God in the intimacy of the Trinity. She doesn't need to go to Mount Gerizim anymore. She doesn't need to go to Mount Zion anymore. She can go anywhere because she's indwelt with the Holy Spirit of the living God and there are no boundaries. She can go to Carthage in Africa and preach the gospel, which she does, and she's a wonderful evangelist. She travels far and wide telling about Messiah that she knows personally and intimately. She gets martyred in Rome in 66 AD under Nero at the same time as Peter and Paul. They're all in Rome at the same time. They all get martyred by Nero. And guess what? At St. Paul outside the walls, it happened close to there on the Ostia Way, but Venerable Cardinal Caesar Barionis, an Italian cardinal who's an ecclesial historian of the Roman Catholic Church, says this, the head of Fotina is religiously preserved in Rome in the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls where I have seen it. Did you know that? If you visited St. Paul outside the wall, you might have missed the Chapel of Relics, where houses the head of Fotina. Make sure you don't miss that if you go to Rome. Then they say, Rabbi, don't you need something to eat? And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. (laughs) My food is to do the will of him who has sent me to complete his work. Ah. So in order to pour out this Holy Spirit on Fotina in baptism and on all people, Jesus has to first do the Father's work. And it's a hard job. And he says, I came to bring fire to the earth and oh, how I wish it were already kindled because I have a baptism with which to be baptized and what stress I am under until it's completed. Our baptism's easy. The little baby gets water poured on it. Yeah, this is his baptism. He's got a job to do in perfect obedience to the Father's will. He lives by the Spirit because he images the Father perfectly. God is love and the outpouring of love between the Father and Son is the Holy Spirit. He says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized. And what stress I am under until it is completed. That's his baptism. A little harder than ours. Then and only then can he give over the spirit, the deepest love between the Father and the Son, the perfection of love between the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is. Jesus said, my food, what sustains me, is to do the will of God, God the Father, who sent me to do his work and complete it with perfect obedience. It's an enormous task, this job he has to complete, and it's his food. His face is set on Jerusalem, on Mount Calvary, not Mount Gerizim. He's got a job to do and he's focused. Salvation comes from the Jews. 
But his work of salvation is going to be for all the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. And his work of salvation is going to be for all Romans too. (laughs) Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. His work of salvation is for them. And his work of salvation is for all Americans too. He wants every single person. Yeah, spring break. He wants them all. (laughs) And he has food that they know nothing about. And Jesus said, the other time he says, I am he, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Do you feel that at Mass? When they lift up the Son of Man? Do those powerful words knock you back into the pew? They should. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. And when we are in 100% total alignment with God's will, we will not be hungry. We will be satisfied. He is the fulfillment of all desire. Now, Jesus stayed there in Samaria for two days and then went on to Galilee. I want you to count. This is the second sign Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. What was the first sign? We got to count seven in John's gospel. The first sign, yes, He came to Cana in Galilee where he changed water to wine. That's sign number one. This is sign number two. There was a royal official, and we've got to read it carefully, a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. Now, a lot of people get this mixed up because they think it's a centurion. No, in John, it's a royal official, not a centurion. The centurion was in Matthew 8 and Luke 7. But in John, it's a royal official's son. Now, who do we know in this area of Galilee that's royalty? Who is royal in Cana? The Tetrarch of Galilee and Peria, the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews was Herod the Great. And when he died, he divided the kingdom and gave a quarter, a tetrarch, and put a tetrarch in charge. Each son got a piece to govern. In this area, at this time, was Herod Antipas. And he is the son of Herod, and she had him with a Samaritan woman. (gasps) First of all, if you remember, Herod's family are Edomites. They don't come from Jacob's line. They come from the other brother Esau's line. And they were a pain in the neck when they were going through the Holy Land. The Edomites were after him. That's Herod's line. And his son was an Edomite. And he has a Samaritan mother. And if you look at, we don't have to get too much into this, but Herod has five wives and all those sons that are all ruling at different times. Antipas is the ruler of Galilee and Perea. So he's a builder like his father. He's built a great empire on the west shore, a big city, Tiberias, on the west shore of Sea of Galilee. And he's a royal official. That means he's part of the royal household of Herod. Oh, it's not a centurion. It's an Edomite. Herod's father, Herod the Great, had massacred all the infants at the time of Jesus. He wanted to kill every single one of them. If there was a possibility, he could be a king. And he did. This is Herod Antipas' father that did this, the slaughter of the innocents, the first martyrs. And in Matthew 2, when they're returning from their exile to Egypt, they hear that Archelaus, another son of Herod, Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, and Joseph was afraid to go there because he had been warned in a dream. Archelaus was really, 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 really bad. So they went up north to Galilee, where Herod Antipas, who was a little nicer, was ruling. And this royal official would have been in Herod Antipas' household, serving him. 
and he has a little boy who's dying. And Jesus said, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. And he noticed, uh, they came and told him, your son's going to be okay. What time did this happen? One o'clock, the same time Jesus had said, your son will live. That's the second sign of Jesus. Jesus has come for the Edomites. Now, Israel was a great monarchy at one time. King David was the greatest king of all. Now, it's not such a great kingdom. It's a divided kingdom. And there is an ethnarchy, which means a political leadership over a common ethnic group of homogeneous kingdom. So these are rulers of the Jews. These are kings of the Jews. Now let's talk about the Jews for a minute, because a lot of people say, well, John's gospel is really anti-Semitic, and a lot of Jewish people don't care for it for that reason, even though John's a Jew, writing for Jews. But you got to know your Jews. You got to know your Jews in John's gospel, (laughs) because there's two groups. The crowd, that's just Joe Blow Jews, you know, just run-of-the-mill Jews. (laughs) And then the Jews, the Jews the Jewish aristocracy, the leadership who denies Jesus as God's anointed Messiah. And we heard about them a lot in Revelation last year. That's a whole different group, okay? So we have to make that clear. He has come for the Jews in this first sign, just the Jewish crowd, the normal Joe Blow Jews at the wedding at Cana. He's also come for the Jewish officials, the highbrow Jews like Nicodemus who serves on the Sanhedrin council. He's also come for the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim, the woman at the well. And now he's come for the Edomites. Wow. Wow. Who else has he come for? That chapter ends with sowing and reaping. Jesus says, do you not save four months more? Then harvest comes. But I tell you, look around and see that the fields are ripe for harvesting. One sows, another reaps. I send you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The apostles are going to reap what everyone else over the years has sown. The patriarchs and the prophets and all the others who have gone out and sown all the seeds, including Jesus, the last witness who is the word who will sow the seed. And then... They get to reap the harvest after Pentecost when they start baptizing. And he says four months, four months, and you'll see this. Four is that ordinal number, north, south, east, west. This is going to be for all people in all directions of the world. Four months could also be four times 30 days or 120. And that 12, a new group of 12, the 12 apostles instead of the old 12 tribes, times 10 of fullness is 120. New governance times fullness. And how many people were in that upper room that day when the Holy Spirit fell? 120. A new 12 times fullness in all directions. The whole world can have this gift. So today we go to John 5. And there is a festival of the Jews and Jesus went up to the festival. Now, that's really south But when they say went up, they're climbing geographically, topographically higher. And three Jewish festivals where all able-bodied men of the kingdom of Judah are expected to go up to the temple at Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. We don't know. He doesn't tell us which feast. And I have a hint that it's Pentecost, Shavuot, but but that's a whole nother lecture for a whole nother time. But now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there's a pool. And in Hebrew, it's called Bethsaida, which has five porticos. 
Now, let's talk about that a minute, because that temple had been destroyed after the Babylonian exile. When they rebuild the temple, the king of Persia, Cyrus, says, Nehemiah and Ezra can go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. Okay, the very, very, very first thing they did was build the sheep gate. The sheep gate? First thing you did was build the sheep gate? Why? First things first, why? The sheep gate, because atonement for sin. They needed animals. They needed a way for them to be sacrificed day and night, day and night, day and night, blemish-free lambs, because blood atones for sin. And it's prophetic, because the sacrifice is foretold. God's going to provide a lamb, remember, to Abraham, also the Passover lamb to Moses, also the sheep gate, when John sees Jesus, the lamb of God, the final sacrifice, the final lamb, and he is the gate in John 12 by which all must enter to be saved. So he's the final lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. After him, no sheep gates needed. No more sheep, bleeding, bleating, <laughs> whatever they say. Because <laughs> you would have heard them bleeding in this story today. You would have heard them. They're in a cage and they're going to go be sacrificed. And they're all crowded in there. Okay, so in Nehemiah 3, the second gate they build is the fish gate. The very second gate they build is the fish gate. Why? It's on the other corner. It's by the pool of Siloam. This one, the sheep gate's by the pool of Bethsaida. They're both by pools, but it's where fish are sold to the temple, to the priests. And the fish gate is mentioned because the fishermen of Galilee would bring their catch through this gate to be sold. Now, who were fishermen that we know? Oh, maybe Peter, Andrew, James, John. They're all fishermen. John has been through this gate many times, the fish gate, to bring fish from Galilee region to Jerusalem. Salted fish because there's no refrigeration. But they know him. He can enter through the fish gate. That's how he gets Peter in the courtyard probably on the night of betrayal. He's a fisherman that has access. They know him. He can come in through the fish gate. And prophetically, what are these men going to do? After the sheep goes through the gate and is the final sacrifice, they're going to become fishers of men. Jesus told them that. in Matthew, follow me. I'm going to make you fish for people. Fishers of men. So that fish gate is very near the pool of Siloam. And Jesus used the water there in John 9 by the fish gate in the pool of Siloam. He used it in the miracle. It's when, we'll study it in a few weeks, when the man is blind and he takes mud and he tells him, go wash now, go wash in the water. Remember when he made Naaman wash in the water. But today, at the sheep gate near the pool of Bethsaida, guess what? Jesus will not use any water. He won't touch the water. He won't have the man touch the water. He won't dunk the man in the water. He'll say nothing about the water. It's interesting. After this, there was a festival of Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's by the sheep gate, and there's a pool in Hebrew called Bethsaida, and it has five porticos. Five always reminds us of Torah. Torah, Moses, the book of Moses. There are five porticos, and there are many invalids lying there, blind, lame, paralyzed. And one man who's there, he's been ill for 38 years. Time out. There's a problem. Where's verse 4? I copied that straight from the Bible. It goes from 3 to 5 in my Bible. What's going on? Where's verse 4? You know me. I went crazy. Where's verse 4? Footnote. Oh, look. John 5, 3. 
other ancient authorities add, wholly or in part, waiting for the stirring of the water for an angel of the Lord. Here's verse 4. They took it out and put it down as a footnote. And it says, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in the water first after the stirring of the water was the one made well from whatever disease that person had. Why did they take that out? I want to know. Does that sound like the Hebrew God? To make people race, paralyzed people race down to the water? When an angel stirs it up, does that sound like the God you know, the God the Israelites knew, the Hebrew God of the Old Testament? And some of you had questions. Inquiring minds want to know. Let's look at it. Greece ruled before Rome. Greek mythology was huge. Many, 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 many gods. A god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the stars, a god of the... Okay. Then Rome conquers Greece in 168 before Christ. They take the Greek mythology... And they Romanize it. They turn it into Roman mythology. Okay? The Greek gods have counterparts as Roman gods. And you had to study that in junior high, right? And you had to know that Ares is Mars and Zeus is Jupiter and on and on. Now, today's archaeological discovery shows, and it's recent, that the pool of Bethsaida was adjacent to the Jerusalem Asclepion. And archaeologists date the recently discovered Asclepion to several centuries after Christ, but it's built upon the foundation of an earlier Asclepion. What is an Asclepion? (laughs) In the first century, there were pools used as Asclepions. And in ancient Greece and Rome, an Asclepion was a healing temple sacred to the little g-god Asclepius the Grecian god of medicine. And these healing temples were a place where the patients could go and get treatment of some sort of physical healing or spiritual healing from these Greek little g-godlets. There was an Asclepion in Athens on the Acropolis in 420 BC. There was Asclepions in Spain. There were Asclepions all over the Roman Empire. In fact, there were 400 Asclepions in the Roman Empire. There was one in Ephesus, the first one. And where did John live? Ephesus. And where did he take Mary? Ephesus. And Asclepius was the god of health, medicine, and healing. And the first hospital, the first Asclepian, was in Ephesus. Now, buckle up, okay? Because you're going to say, what is she doing? (laughs) Okay? Just hang with me, and it'll all make sense at the end. Asclepius was the son of the Greek sun god Apollo. And Apollo had a mortal human lover named Coronis. And Apollo's job was to carry the sun from the east to the west each day. And when he's doing that, he can see everything from his vantage point on Mount Olympias. Apollo ordered a white crow, looks kind of like a dove, no, it's a white crow, to guard the mortal woman that he loved, Coronis, so that no one would violate her purity. And the white crow saw Coronis one day give herself to another, another man. So the, the white crow flew off to to tell his master Apollo. And in his fury, Apollo threw down his plectrum, which is his pick to strum his harp. And his laurel crown fell in the dust and he looked at the white crow and his eyes were full of hatred. And that white crow's feathers turned black as pitch. That was part one of the Gospel of John, chapter five, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.